You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Hello to all of you that I cannot see, and welcome to Hope Bible Church today. If you've got a copy of God's Word, why don't you turn with me wherever you are to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we are going today. The title of today's message is To Be One. To Be One. Okay, so Ephesians 4. I don't know where you are at home, but I'm going to give you time to get your Bible, get a copy of God's Word in front of you. It's so important. In fact, I'm going to give you a little introduction to the book of Ephesians to give you time to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, okay? Turn there. You're going? You're getting your Bible? You're going to do it. I trust you. All right, Ephesians, if you don't remember this or maybe don't know or maybe never even heard before, is what they call a prison epistle. Ephesians, in other words, was written behind bars by a guy in jail, little background as well. This is actually the turning point, chapter 4, verse 1, is the turning point in the book of Ephesians. Paul, the guy who's behind bars, who wrote the letter, Paul has just finished three chapters of dense truth, reminding the Ephesians over and over again who they are as followers of Jesus Christ. He says, because you follow Jesus, you've been given an adoption, you've been given a redemption, you've been given inheritance and power and life and grace and a citizenship in heaven and most of all, and best of all, you've been given the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through the first three chapters, there is only one, count it, one command And that command is to remember. But now, at the turning point, chapter 4, and for the rest of the book, Paul's going to give a ton of commands. In light of who you are, this is how you should live. And this is how he begins it. Chapter 4, verse 1. You got it? You're there? You're there. It says this, God's word. I, therefore... A prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now let me pause there for just a second. As we see right in God's word, the language is so intense. In the original language, this, is, this sentence actually begins with the word urge. And what that means, that word urge, is to call to one side, to exhort, to appeal, come on forward, to implore someone, you've got to do this. Picture this word being used today, you go to a movie theater, remember those things? You go to a movie theater, and you're waiting outside for your friend, and he's not there yet. And you're waiting, and you're waiting, and the doors are opening, and you're about to go in, and then you see your friend pull up and get out of his car, and you are calling to your friend across the parking lot, come on, come on, and hold your spot. Come on, get in. We got to go. We got to go. It's starting. Come alongside. Join me up here. You would use that word urge right there. That's the sense behind this. Now, what is Paul so urgent about? What's he calling them to? It's this, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Worthy, he says. Walk worthy. Worthy of what? Well, everything he said so far in chapters 1 through 3. Remember, you're adopted. You've got an internal inheritance. You've been given a citizenship in heaven. You've been freedom from life and, and from sin and to death. And, and you've been given the power of God that rests upon you. And you, you've been given unmerited favor. You've been given the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You need to walk worthy of that. Because you've been given so much, walk worthy to the calling to which you've been called. And as we draw our hearts to prepare for this message, wherever you are, look at your own life. Look at the love of Jesus Christ upon you, adopting you, redeeming you, the power of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ upon you. Walk worthy of that. Now listen, church, I haven't yet told you the point of today's message. So if you're a note taker, just relax, okay? Uh, I haven't even told you point number one. It's a longer intro for today. Walk worthy, he says. I'm not at the main point yet, okay? But what does a worthy walk look like? What's at the top of Paul's list? Well, he describes it in verses two and three. Look down at the text again. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What's the top list of Paul's priorities that describe how we walk worthy in the Christian life? What's the top priority? Unity. Oneness. We walk worthy when we walk as one. Church, can I just ask you a question? Have you ever seen a time in your life when there was so much opportunity for the church's unity to come under attack? It starts with an issue. To wear masks or not to wear masks. To open the businesses or to keep them closed. To send your kids to school or to keep them home. To agree with the government or to call them foolish and even dictatorial. To open the church or to keep it online. To vaccinate or not to vaccinate. To lock down or not to lock down. It starts with an issue. And then you add your perspective to it. Well, I live alone. Well, I've got a big family. Well, I'm fighting cancer. Well, I'm perfectly healthy. I'm in my 70s. We need to be careful. I'm in my 20s. Can I begin my life now? I need to see people. I'm good laying low. I can't get sick with this. I don't feel comfortable with doing that. I work outside the home. I need to go. I can work in the home. It's no big deal. Well, I've seen people die. Well, I've seen people recover. Well, I don't know anybody who's gotten sick. Well, I've got a big history of being lied to. Well, I trust what they're telling me. Starts with an issue, moves to a perspective, and then you reach your conclusion. And then you gather some authorities around yourselves and you find yourself saying things like, well, the stats show, well, the news reports say, well, this doctor said, well, my friend Bob said, and then the disagreements happen because invariably you're going to run into someone who holds a different opinion than your own, and then the arguments are had because they have their own opinion and their own authority and their own experts and their own perspective, and then there's division that can happen. Well, I can't talk to them anymore. They're completely unreasonable. They don't get it. They're crazy. I'm done. Church, can I ask you a question? Have you ever seen the time in your life when there was so much opportunity for the unity of the church to come under attack? Brothers and sisters mad at each other, holding positions so vehemently that harm is done. And then when that happens, what happens when that happens? Well, an army that fights against itself, loses sight of the real battle. It loses sight of the real battle. 
And Paul's voice from prison cries out, remember who you are. Walk worthy. Walk as one. Introduction done. Here's the main point if you want to write it down. We must be one. We must be one. Another way to put it, stop divisions. They wreck the gospel. They dishonor the Lord. Another way to put it, united we stand, divided we fall. We must be one. Now in the rest of our time, I want to repaint Paul's picture of unity, which is what he's talking about here in Ephesians chapter 4. First, I want to show you the behaviors that we are to hold on to, and then second, the beliefs that we should hold on to as well. So let's start with this. Point number one, the behaviors of unity. The behaviors of unity. Back to verses 2 and 3 again. Walk worthy, he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now what I'm going to do is outline five behaviors here, and you are going to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you on each of these. In fact, to give you time for this, I'm going to pray right now that the Lord would lead us as we look deeply at his text. So pray again with me, would you, church? God, we pray right now, this would not just be an academic exercise, this would not just be looking at words, but that this would be listening God, help us listen to your voice today. As the word is living and active, would we allow it to cut us as it heals us? Lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Here's the first word, humility. This idea is pretty understandable. It conveys lowliness, a humble position. Here's the truth for you. The Romans hated that word. The Romans only used that word to describe slaves. It was a negative word. But in Christ, it's a positive word. Humility recognizes your position. Just like Jesus as a servant to others. And you seek others' interests first. It describes the attitude of a person who recognizes that all are of equal value in God's sight. In opposite to this, the arrogant says, the arrogant says, well, my way is always right. My opinions are always the most informed. And people who think differently than me, then are, well, they're just, they're just dumber than me. But humility makes it impossible in Christ for believers to walk in arrogance. And notice verse 2 puts this word all in front of humility. Did you see that? Meaning it's not okay to be humble sometimes, just on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Now setting aside my interest and looking to the interests of others is all the time, he says. Do you live like this? I'm going to set aside my preferences right now. I'm going to set aside my pride right now. And I'm going to love that person. I don't have to be right right now. They just need me to care right now. First word, humility. How you doing? Second word, gentleness. Some places in some of your Bibles, you might have this at home, it's translated as meekness. That means power under control. 
You have the power to do something about something, to take control, to aggressively grab the situation, but you limit yourself. This behavior that Paul points to is all about the way we treat each other. Is it raised voices or listening to try and understand? Are you shouting, blood pressure rising, frustrations, email bombing people, social media trolling people, aggressively controlling the situations you find yourself in, interrupting, posturing, using your position, your influence, or even, listen, your size to dominate the situation? Or do you treat others in a meek way? You pull back your power, especially, listen, when they disagree with you. Gentleness treats others as the Lord treats you with kindness and meekness. Think about this. If anyone had the right to seize control of a situation, it was the Lord Jesus. You ever read the Gospels and read the Pharisees confronting the Gospel with such arrogance, with such opinion, and so wrong and so sinful and so selfishly motivated? You ever read the Gospels and say, Jesus, just do something. Just, just take over the situation. Just, just bring the fire down. or something. But that's not how Jesus responds. With meekness. Even when they're wrong. How are you doing with that? Leads me to the, sec- the third word, patience. That's an inner tranquility while waiting. Able to bear up under the most difficult circumstances. And by the way, if you're starting to feel like these characteristics do sound an awful lot like Jesus who humbled himself, who meekly walked in patient endurance, then you're absolutely right. How's your patience these days? You find yourself in a position you can't control and you're being asked to wait? Can you relate to that? You find yourself enduring difficult circumstances? Are you patient or impatient? Are you looking for escapes? Are you easily annoyed? Are you easily frustrated? Feeling as though everyone and everything is against you? Patience is self-restraint. You do not retaliate a wrong that's done to you. Hey, have you become an expert at reading motives these days? You know what I mean? Or you're watching on the Zoom call, or you're emailing, dialoguing as you're removed from people, and and someone says something, or the body language conveys something, and you're like, wait, what do they mean by that? You know, when they dropped their eyes when I said that, what does that mean? They frustrated? What did that email mean? The negative, and you go to places in your head, or are you believing the best in people? You know, a lot of us are going through a lot these days. A lot of difficulty these days. Feeling overwhelmed in many, many circumstances of life. Are you being patient with people like this? Are you being patient with people like me? Who don't have it together every day? Slip up, stumble? Or are you just getting frustrated with us? Humility, gentleness, patience. There's two more. These are the more painful ones. Look at the text. Bearing with one another in love, it says. That that means to endure or to put up with something unpleasant or difficult for the sake of someone else. And notice, to do it in love. One of the greatest marks of maturity in Christ is your willingness to endure others' faults and to do it in love. 
And you do it because you care more for them and more for unity than you do for tossing the guy off to the side. It's the difference between I'm so done with you, I'm so done with this place, I'm so done with this situation, to okay, so that's a problem, but I love you. And I want to walk with you in this. I'm going to show people how much I love them by receiving them just as they are. One of the quietest heroes of my life does just this. Receives even the messiest of people. Embraces flaws to love the person. Reminds me of Jesus. So easy though, isn't it? So easy just to toss people, throw your hands up, leave them behind. But bearing with one another in love means that you realize that God has accepted you as filled with flaws. And that's the way you're to accept others, to receive them in this kind of love. Can I just be honest with you for a moment? As I closed the year in 2020, I realized it was a low tide mark in my life in many, many ways. And one of the ways was the meager amount of grace I was giving to people. I didn't like their opinions too much. I didn't like their pushiness. I didn't like how I was asked to do things I sometimes thought were not right or dumb. I didn't want to bear with people in love. I wanted them to see it my own way. I wanted them to get this. I wanted them to, to, to think exactly the same way I thought about everything. It's pastoral transparency about my sinfulness, but also about my stupidity, I guess. You need to think the same way about me about everything. Otherwise, ah. How little grace I had for others. But this is not a behavior that unifies. But we are called to unity. We're called to so much more. Here's all of them now. Here's the behaviors of unity for you here on screen. Humility. I view others as more significant than myself, just as Jesus has done for me. Gentleness. I will control myself and treat others gently just as Jesus has treated me. Patience. I will wait because Jesus has a plan for me. Bearing with one another. I will reach beyond the flaw to love the broken person just like Jesus did and is still doing for me. You understand, church, that these all are choices you make. These are behaviors you choose to do. They don't just happen to you. You make a decision to make these behaviors. And all four of these now lead into the summary statement we see at the bottom of verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now the word here that Paul uses conveys a zeal an intense desire to see this come about. This is the thing you want more than anything else, the unity of the, bond, of the spirit and the bond of peace. You want this, you want this. He has a hunger, he has an unquenchable desire for believers to hold to, to guard, to hold fast to unity. This is what he really, really wants. Imagine this, in the jail cell, this is the thing he wants the most. This is the first thing on his list. Now behave this way. Be one together. This is how important this is. 
And this church is what we must be really, really passionate about as well. We should be passionate about the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We must be one. Now today, in the calendar, is a big day for some. Today, on some field somewhere, a bunch of grown and overgrown men are going to play a game with a misshapen ball. And it's going to have a powerful effect upon millions of people. Literally millions of men and women united together, even though they're separated by many, many miles, are going to sing a national anthem together in their living rooms. They're going to eat chips and dip together in their living rooms. They're going to cheer together. Some are even going to cry together over a game. Why is that? Because they're eager, they're passionate, they're united over a game. A game. A game. Can I ask the question? Why are football fans more passionate about a one and done game than we can be sometimes about the unity of the church of the living God? Why do I care so much about being heard and about being right than I do about the unity of the church of the living God? Why do I care so much about everyone following my opinion and my comforts and my rights than I do about the unity of the church of the living God? Locked in prison, Paul says, if you're going to be passionate about something, be passionate about being one. Stick together. This world is so hard. This world is so difficult. There's so many attacks on so many sides. Be united. And when you're united, you will behave like this with one another, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, let me just ask the question here. Should we always be unified, though? Aren't there some things and good reasons to not hold to unity? Aren't there some things that we should actually really fight for? Aren't there some good reasons to say, you know what, we need to break company right now? Well, Paul anticipates this question, and he writes this in verses 4 through 6. Take a look at the text. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, what was that we just read? It's a summary of the absolute beliefs of the Christian faith. And this leads us to our second point. Being one means we demonstrate the behaviors of unity, yes, but it also means that we hold fast to the beliefs of unity as well. The beliefs of unity. This is a list of seven absolutes, and before we jump into them, let me talk briefly about those that are here, and this little ring diagram I think will help us. Uh, If you've had a doctrine class with me ever, you've seen this diagram before. At the center of the diagram, these are the hills that we die on. These are the absolutes, we call them. 
They define the core beliefs of the Christian faith. Without these absolutes, you're actually not a Christian. The next ring out are convictions. They're not core beliefs, but they have a significant impact upon the effectiveness, the life of the church. Beyond that one ring is opinions. They're less clear issues that are generally not worth dividing over. Scripture talks a little about them, not too much. And then the last ring are just questions, currently unsettled issues. At the bottom of this chart, of this diagram, you can see the question we have, which is a constant question we need to be asking ourselves, which is this. Am I dying on the right hills? Now, you may have a question, okay, well, what makes an absolute an absolute? How do we know what goes in that center ring? Well, the three things, three reasons we know that can go in the center ring. Uh, well, one, the Bible talks clearly about it a ton. Over and over and over and over and over again, the Bible talks about this. And then secondly, it's absolutely essential for the gospel. It's essential for the message of salvation. It's the, essential for the hope and the plan that the Lord Jesus Christ has instituted from before time began. It's a mission statement of God. It's essential for this. And then thirdly, it directly affects the character of God. Three criteria. What makes something an absolute? Right there. The Bible talks about it a lot. It's essential for the gospel. And it directly affects the character of God. So what have we just read? In verses 4 through 6, Paul gives us seven, count them, seven absolutes. And they all begin with the word one. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all. These are the things around which we are to be united. These are the absolutes of the faith. Step away from one of the absolutes of the faith and you're leaving the fences of Christianity. Let's go over them quickly. What do they mean? One body, that's the church. That's the church, the body of Christ. The people of God, regardless of race, gender, background, even geography and time, we belong to the body of Christ, the church, the group for whom Jesus Christ died. And Jesus loves his church, and he gave his life for broken people. I want you to notice this as well. Of all the absolutes to begin with, Paul begins with this one. He puts the church right at the front of the list. One body, one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit who binds us together, who is himself, as we've seen, the source of all unity. One hope. One hope. Now, there's a word that's tossed around a lot these days. Hope. I was directed to this magazine cover recently. This is The Economist. Suddenly hope. You may not be able to see this, but at the end of the tunnel, the light of the tunnel is a syringe, presumably with a vaccine in it. Hope. Our world talks a lot about hope these days. Hope that things will get back to normal. Hope for the vaccine. Hope for the cure. Hope to an end of lockdown. And as great as those things are, this is not the central hope of the follower of Jesus Christ. Our hope is not in the things of the world that will perish and fade away, but in the eternal hope of the Lord Jesus Christ and our reunion with him someday soon. We live for this hope when we can see him face to face. 
And all this will wash away forever in the face of the Lord. Speaking of which, here's our next one. One Lord. Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and man, the one who humbled himself, who entered willingly into our suffering, who patiently endures the cross that we might have oceans of grace and mercy and forgiveness and love opened up as the sins of our lives are washed away in an ocean of forgiveness and we are reconciled and brought back to God. And how do we receive this gift of grace? That's the next one, one faith, the absolute that only by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, a rejection of my self-reliance, I cannot do this anymore. I cannot fix myself. I cannot make my life better. The hopes I've been chasing after are bankrupt hopes. I need you, Lord Jesus. I am broken and I need forgiveness. And then I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. And I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. And I find salvation in him. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's actually a twofold meaning, meaning brought in, immersed into the life in Christ, welcomed into the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, but then also me making a public stand for the Lord Jesus Christ in my act of being baptized. Jesus publicly associated with me, so I'm gonna publicly associate with him. And then finally, one God and Father of all. We've seen the absolute of the Son. We've mentioned the Spirit. Now the third member of the Trinity, the Father, finishes the list, and that's right. The good Father who plans from before eternity, who sustains, who loves. The grieved Father who parts with his Son so as to save me, to save you. The Holy Father who is brilliant in glory and unapproachable in light. My Father, my Father, who delights to call me his son. Imperfect as I am. This is the gospel. So question, is it okay to, to break unity with someone who denies any one of these? Well, yes. Agreeing to disagree over absolutes is a false unity. These are absolutes. If we don't have them, we don't have unity. Remember, what makes an absolute an absolute? The Bible talks about it a lot, clearly. It's essential for the gospel. It directly affects the character of God. That's all that we've seen so far. But here's the problem. Let me pull this ring diagram up again. Here's the problem, though. The problem, we have the absolutes, but the problem is when we start to take questions and we start to take opinions, and we start to drag them into the center. No, 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 this is the most important thing. This is the most important thing. I want to talk about this. This is critical. We need to talk about this. And listen, sometimes we bring an opinion or even a question and bring them into the center. And then all of a sudden we start to lose sight of the actual things that are actually absolutes. Convinced of something's absoluteness, it's all you can think about. And then with your opinion, Armed with your experts, you go gunning for people who disagree with you, even believers in the body of Christ. It's not like this. It's not to be like this, church. We must be one. We must be one. Unity is not optional. 
I'm so thankful in our church of so many who get this. I'm so thankful for the evidences of God's grace through the life of our church in the midst of the most difficult year of many of their lives, saying, I'm gonna choose to humble myself. I'm gonna choose to serve my brother in Christ. I'm gonna choose to overlook that fault. I'm gonna extend grace in this season. I'm gonna walk in patience. We're united on the, on the essentials. We're united on the absolutes. And I disagree with you on this, but we're gonna walk together in this. I'm so thankful for those who get this. Someone is allowed to have a different opinion on something than I do. That's not an absolute. Graciously accepting people that disagree with you does not mean that you endorse what they believe. It also doesn't mean that you've given up your conviction that you hold to. You follow your conscience as you search the scriptures and as you talk to God. But listen, you do not get a pass on loving people just because they disagree with you. In the absolutes, we are united. In the non-absolutes, there's freedom. But in all things, there's love. What hills are you willing to die on these days? What are you building your life upon right now? You need to make sure it's the right hills. We behave as united. We believe as united. A couple more questions before we go. What, what note would you pass through the bars? What are you most passionate about these days? For Paul, it was a plea for unity, for oneness. What about you? What about you? Got to stop wearing masks, man. Can't trust our government. Vaccines are our only hope. Can't trust vaccines. What are you most passionate about these days? Another way to ask this question would be, if you knew you were only hours away from death, what would you pray for? That demonstrates your passion as well, doesn't it? What would you pray earnestly for? Thankfully, just as we have a record of notes passed through bars, we also have a record of final hours and a prayer that was given. John chapter 17 records these words from us. These are Jesus' words. Some of the last words before he was arrested and sent off to be crucified. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Now this passage, church, is a dense passage. There's a lot here, but what I want you to see is what I've highlighted. Look at the plea for unity. Look at the prayers of the Son of God to the Father for unity. Let the church be one, that the church be one, that the church be one, and then look at the reasons, the so that, that they be one, so that the world may believe, so that the world may know you sent me. Why is unity so important, church? Because it's a gospel issue. 
If we're not on track with the most important thing of the world that is lost and dying around us, of the world that is clinging to hopes like vaccines and hopes of lockdown ending, but realizing they don't have the main hope of life in Jesus Christ, if we're fighting amongst ourselves, if there's disagreements amongst believers, then we're not fighting the battle we need to be fighting. And that is the battle we need to be fighting. That we be one, that they may know, that they may hear, that lives be changed for the glory of God. Again, I'm so thankful for so many in our church who understand this. And so thankful for the many evidences of God's grace. And there are lives that are coming to Jesus Christ. This is the mission we need to be on, church. This is the thing that we need to be focused on. Unity is a gospel issue. Not only is our Lord displeased, but our witness is affected if we are not united. That we be a church that says, you know what, I disagree with you on that. I disagree with you on that, but we, you, know, you hold a different opinion than me on that. But we are one in this, aren't we? We're all about this together, aren't we? That God would see lives changed in front of our eyes. That the songs in heaven increased, even in the midst of the most darkest, difficult days that some of us are facing, would life after life after life be found in Jesus Christ. Listen, the reality is, in a church our size, we are not going to have total agreement on things like COVID or vaccinations or politics or homeschooling or whatever, but it doesn't matter. We can have our differences but still be united. We can love each other and love the Lord and love the lost, even being just a little different. That we would keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is making disciples, sharing the gospel, and seeing them to maturity in Lord Jesus Christ, that the kingdom of God would go forward around the world and in us. But we can't do that if we're not one. We must be one. Let me pray for us. Lord, please fix our eyes on what truly matters. God, forgive us of our selfishness. This year has been so difficult on all of us in so many ways, and we confess that we've lost patience at times as we've removed ourselves from one another. We've grown suspicious, in some cases angry and frustrated with people we disagree with, and Sometimes for many of us, this has led us to a place of disunity. Please forgive us, Lord. Search our hearts. What needs to change? What needs to go? What do I need to repent of today? What hills have I been choosing to die on that have distracted me from your call upon my life? Lord, we pray that you would build this church 
that you would heal where healing is needed, that you would encourage where encouragement is needed, that you would give us all, all of us, Lord, wisdom, and give us all of us, please, God, endurance. Endurance, Lord, please. And God, can we also be so bold as to pray, Lord, please, would we see lives saved in you? Lord, will we build our lives upon you? Because you, Lord, are worthy. When we look to you, when we truly begin to see you more accurately, how can we live for anything else? How can we live for anything else? You are worthy. You are worthy. Help us live for you now. Please, Lord Jesus. Bind us together in truth. Bind us together in true love for one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.